From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Hi and welcome to another John Hannah Meets Archive. Today I'm going back to 2012 when I went to Worthing in Sussex to interview popular actor Tony Adams, best known of course for playing Adam Chance in Crossroads and Neville Bywaters in General Hospital. Another... Tony, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, John. We're in uh, Worthing. Well, it sounds like we're in a gentleman's lavatory, but we're not. We're in my dressing room at the at the Connaught Theatre, Worthing, and there is an echo. So I'm sorry about that. Can't do much about that, John. <laughs> I've got some exciting news for you. you. Really? You may know, you may not. When I spoke to you last night, yes. I mentioned General Hospital. Yes. And I mentioned a DVD. Yes. Do you know anything nope, about it? No, not a thing. Right. Well, last month they released a DVD. It's a thousand minutes. Yes. And it's five discs and it's General Hospital Series 1. Right. Yes. Am I in it? Well, you were in series one, weren't you? I, I, well, it, it was strange because, you know, we, we, did, we did that um, at lunchtime originally with Crown Court. And I also did Crown Court. And at one point we wanted um, to bring the two shows together so that we could segue from something that had happened, an accident that had happened, that then went into Crown Court. But we never did that. Then General Hospital went to a Friday evening at eight o'clock. And uh, it was it was actually very very popular, but I do, I don't know. The, the <laughs> I've got a printout in a minute for you all about it. Oh really? Yes, that's terrific. I mean, I know that um, that Crossroads. Dare I mention Crossroads and dear old Adam Chance? Um, Crossroads um, has got DVDs. I've never ever received anything anything from that ever. And I know that I've, I've been in some of them. Uh, the only thing that really keeps me going is, uh, is Doctor Who. Yes. I get, I get a continual, not a lot of money, but, you know, the odd 25, 75. I had 125 last week from sales abroad. Doctor Who is really, really good. You had a, quite a good part in... I played Elgin, yes. Yeah. It was, that, that was the Green Death. It was called the Green Death, and it was all about maggots. And it was with one of my favourite doctors, uh, John Pertwee. And Elgin was supposed, I think in the eighth episode, I think it was seven or eight episodes, to save the world. And I got a cute stomachache on the camera rehearsal the night before. And Michael Brand, who was the director, said, look, you needn't come in, Tony, because he said, you know it. And he said, you've done all the episodes before. You know the studio. You know everybody. Just rest up. And I said to him, well, I have been, uh, I have been to the Middlesex Hospital and they, they, they've given me peppermint, basically. They've given me peppermint for it. And we thought that was all right. Then at about five o'clock, having rested all day, I got up to go to the loo. Too much information, Tony. And I went to go to the loo, and it was like somebody stuck a knife right the way through me. 
and I was rushed to hospital, I was rushed to the Middlesex, I was operated on there and then, and so Elgin never saved the world. Oh, it's a, a shame, story. isn't it? With, with Bertwee, who was a very approachable, very nice man, I, I was a great advocate in those days of garlic pearls because they were the best natural antibiotic you could get. Also, they gave you energy. And the first, the very first sort of remembered strike was when they were building the pyramids in Egypt and they cut their intake of garlic, the guys who were actually building it, and they had a strike because their energy levels dropped. And I gave all this information to John Pertwee. And when I came round in the ward after my operation, very nice nurse was looking down on me. She said, are you all right, Mr. Adams? And I said, yes, I am, thank you. And I was a bit drowsy. And she said, I've got a telegram for you here. I used to love it when you got telegrams in those days. And I said, oh, really? She said, would you like me to read it to you? And I said, if you'd be so kind, yes. And it just said, so much for garlic pearls, John Pertwee. <laughs> but you did it in the end, did you? You filmed it in the end? No, no, I was never able to. No, I only, I only did episode one, two, three, four, and five, and, uh, and six, if it was six. I can't, the last episode I didn't do. Oh. Oh, it was a shame. <laughs> Memories then of uh, Dr. Neville Bywaters. We talked about General Hospital. Yes. In the, in the sort of write-ups for the DVD, it talks about the very hunky <laughs> Dr. Bywaters. What, me? You, yeah. Oh, hunky. <laughs> I mean, I always say, you know, I was a heartthrob and now I'm a coronary, yeah. <laughs> but hunky, well. Lots of lady fans, though, didn't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, he had a lot of lady fans. I had a boat in those days, and I used to keep it at Lymington. And I remember when we had breaks off from the studio, like we didn't work over Christmas, and the amount of cars, and some cars, I mean, were sort of like four foot by two foot that came to me. Uh, Neville, Neville Bywaters had a, had a, a lot of fan mail. Great days then for you, really? Yeah, they were good days because it was progression. I started as, as a houseman, then I became a doctor, then I became a mister. So I, I climbed the, the ladder as such. And it was nice people, it was a lovely studio. Um, it, it was a very happy time in my life. People have been writing in to say how much they enjoy the DVDs. Oh, and, really? And some people, it was their first sort of taste of a soap type thing, in a way, or a series like that. Yes. And a lot of people just say they're loving it, which is good, isn't it? It's very good. Very mm. good. I'm, it would have been nice to have, uh, have had a little bit of feedback from it. I'm surprised that nobody said, hey, do you mind if we do this? I would have thought they'd have had to have got... Permission, I don't know. I think some are in black and white because they were tele-recorded for a, a, a foreign market, apparently. Oh, right. Yeah, so it's quite intriguing. Yeah, somebody, I've got it all for you. So, somebody told me I was big in Hong Kong. <laughs> and I said, and they said, oh, yes, General Hospital goes out in Hong Kong. There again, I never, never received any payment for that. But that show business, John. <laughs> I almost said things never change, but I didn't say that. No. <laughs> that show business. Why do you do? Why do you do this? Is it for love? No, I'm afraid it isn't for love. We all have to have an existence. Did some ladies say to you when you were quite young, asked you what you wanted to be yes. when you grew yeah. up? Yes. And what did you say? I said that I, I didn't know and I wasn't sure. 
and they said, if you don't know, you will be put down a coal mine. And as we lived in Wales, and there were slate mines and coal mines around us, I was absolutely terrified that this is what was going to happen. And one day my mother was listening to the radio, and I think it was Woman's Hour, and she heard this woman called Ruth Conti, who was Italia Conti's sister. Now, Italia Conti's was a very famous, famous, famous <laughs> stage school in those days, and it had people like Jack Hawkins and Gertie Lawrence and Noel Coward, all sorts of great people had been at this school. And Italia Conti had died, and Ruth Conti had come over to take over the helm from Australia. And my mother just turned to me and said, would you like to go on the stage? And I said, yes. Because as an only child, I think your imagination is, is probably more fertile. I mean, my cardboard box would be a, be a tank one day. It would be a shop another day. It would be a ship at sea another day. It would be a theater. It could be anything. And I think it was a very fertile imagination. And I thought, that, that is the way I'm going to, going to go. And I've been doing it for 62 years. And I'm only 28 years yes, old. So it's very good, very good <laughs> job, that. You work with some greats like Donald Pleasance, I know, Sir Michael Redgrave, Peggy Ashcroft. You work with lots and lots of sort of big names, haven't you? Richard Burton, mm. Ginger Rogers. She was one of the greatest stars, I think, I, I really ever worked with, was Ginger Rogers, uh, because she was known worldwide. When you first met her, were you sort of a bit in awe? Did you feel... N no, I, she was amazingly human. Um, really amazingly human. She was also quite lonely, as a lot of those great stars were. And she was absolutely... Her professional approach off the stage, it carried on the stage and then came off with her. We were doing MAME at, um, at Theatre Royal Drury Lane, and she used to say, I have three shows to do a night. My first show is arriving at the theatre. And she would arrive in the Rolls-Royce that the management uh, provided for her in an outfit that was suitable for her to be photographed in because there was always, always somebody at the stage door wanting to meet her. Then she said, my next show is the show itself. And then she said, my third show she put on a completely different outfit to come back out so people could say, we met her twice. So she would put on the second outfit and she would open the window and kneel in the rolls and sign photographs and things through the window, but be on her knees. Then the other thing that she used to do was her secretary would come and see me in my dressing room and her secretary said, um, Tony, Miss Rogers wants to know is it possible to do the usual tonight? And I would say either yes or no. And the usual was that I would go out to the stage door, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, and nobody would ask me for my autograph. And I would go to the Endell Street chip shop. And um, after all this paraphernalia of Miss Rogers signing this, that and the other, she would then get back into the rolls. The rolls would then go up Endell Street, by which time I had bought two lots in paper of cotton chips and pickled onions. We would then get into the back of the rolls and Bert, her chauffeur, 
very human was Burton. He used to say, I'm sorry, love, but he said, smell of them fish and chips kills me. And it's the only time he used to put the petition up, the glass petition, between us and them, and it was like, you know, between him and us. And we would sit in the back of the rows and we would eat the fish and chips. And then probably she would say, let's stop in Cambridge Circus. And we would then walk down Shaftesbury Avenue and we would look at the bills outside theatres and photographs. And that's where she was amazingly human. She would come to Little Mew's house that I lived in and uh, loved staying up till about four o'clock in the morning. And uh, God, I found it knackering. <laughs> Absolutely. But a great, great, great lady. On a lazy, maybe rainy, even blowy or snowy or hazy Sunday afternoon, John Hannah means meeting you. Currently, I'm in Worthing with Tony Adams, and we've been talking about his life and some of the people he's worked with, and he's. Adam Chanson, at least 10 years, wasn't it? Was it 10 years? 15. 15 altogether. 15. Gosh. Man and boy. Yeah. Yeah. Still fondly remembered for that, aren't you? I think so. I mean, it was on the Isle of Wight that one of the nicest things ever happened to me because sometimes people see my face and think, oh, I know him from somewhere. Um, where is it that I've known him from? I was walking up the street because, you know, I love the island. Mm. And... Uh, I was walking up with, with, uh, with my partner. We were walking up Sandown High Street and these four ladies were coming towards us. And um, the one in the middle stopped and she, she looked at me and she said to her three friends, Oh, she said, do you know who this young man is? And the three friends looked and they went, No. And she said, Well, he took my gallbladder out in 1988. And I said, I'm Terribly sorry, but I don't think I did. She said, I never forget a face, young man. I never forget a face. So that's absolutely true. <laughs> I took her gallbladder out. <laughs> that was fun, though, wasn't it? I mean, you, the show had lots of stick because stuff reputedly moved. But How do you make a surfboard? You sit in front of Crossroads for 27 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but people got hooked on it, didn't they? Oh, yes. I mean, come on. You knock it, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's like all those things that the Whitehall farces, Brian Ricks. I mean, people used to say, oh, it's frightful. You must go to the National Theatre or the Old Vic. But he packed them in. He gave the public what they wanted. And at the end of the day, Crossroads had 19 million viewers. Yes. And today they say, this show is breaking all Mary Berry has got with her bake-off. Um, with Hollywood, she said, they've, they've got seven, 7 million viewers. We had 19, which wasn't bad. When you think things like Downton, which are great success, yes. but only probably 10 or 11 million, say only, but yes. Crossroads was 19. 19 million. Unbelievable. At one point. Yes. Yeah. You came back, of course, didn't you? 2001. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Born Again one. Yes. Yes, I came back. You were very religious in that, Tony, weren't you? I think, I think he, he did get religion and, and became a tramp, which makes him much more interesting to play. Yes, he, he, he got religion in a big way. And uh, I, think, I think he murdered Jill. I think he murdered... Her stepdaughter, I think, oh, uh, I owe him a lot. 
He gave me a lot and I owe him a lot. We never saw him die, did we? No, and Yvonne Grace, who was the, the producer of the second lot of Crossroads, went out. Uh, called me and asked me to come up to London and have lunch with her. And she said, we never found Adam's corpse. And she said, I don't believe he's dead and I'd like to bring him back. And she told me what storyline she wanted the character to play, which would have been absolutely lovely. But sadly, a month before I was due to go back in, the, the network said, we don't want it anymore. It had fallen between two stools. And I think if it had been left alone, like El Dorado, you know, when El Dorado came out, I mean, everybody said it's terrible. After a month, it really settled in and became very good. And I think that Crossroads might have found its feet. I don't know. It didn't happen. So Adam didn't come back for a third time. You've done lots of shows on the Isle of Wight, and I know you worked with a young lady who was very, well, naive to the business, almost. Oh, she and then was. She became... I remember Brigitta. Mm, she played Brigitta. Did she? Yes, she did. We're talking, of course, about Laura Michelle Kelly. Absolutely right. Gosh. When you saw her, did you ever think... We always thought that she had... I'm not just saying this. We always thought that there was something about that kid. And her mother used to dress her. And um, we, we, we would do quick changes together and things like that. And, but all the time, we always thought there is something about that child. She's going to, she's going to go places. And look what happened. Just look what happened. How ex That's show business, isn't it? Movies, Broadway, West End. Yes. Incredible. And here I am in Worthing. <laughs> <laughs> John Hannum, Can't Cook, Won't Cook. What a sexy voice. And we're Tony Adams and, uh, in Worthing. And, uh, well, you still enjoy life, don't you? I'm enjoying life, I think, probably more now than I ever have, to be honest. I've not really ever had ambition. I think ambition can really stop you and, and make your life a misery. Uh, I never really had any great ambition. I have been very fortunate uh, very, very lucky, very, very fortunate. And, you know, when I, I went into Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the Palladium, when I played Grandpa there, I mean, it was a Saturday evening. It was quarter to seven in the evening. I remember it quite well. Michael Rose, who presented the show with the Broccolis, phoned me up at quarter to seven and was chatting away. And I just thought it was a social call. And he said, by the way, he said, I'm sending a car to pick you up on Monday morning because I want you at the London Palladium at 10 o'clock, because you're taking over the role of Grandpa. And Gareth Hunt, who'd been rehearsing it for three weeks, um, we, we know that he had the heart problem. Mm. And because of that, he had to pull out. And I went in and I did um, 19 months at the Palladium. And then it went on tour. Then I joined it again for the end of the tour of, of the big production. There was another tour after that, but of the big production. And we went to places like Singapore and Sunderland and Bradford. Finishing up in that fantastic place, Cardiff. Absolutely amazing. Gosh, I did, I did love Cardiff. I saw it at the Mayflower with you in it. Right. Southampton. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. So you love the island. But my favourite Tony Adams story, because uh, your mother's got a... Fascinating life, had a fascinating life. When we first met, the story you told me about 
what you do with her ashes. Would you? It's like a. I'd like you to reprise it. Really. Well, mother, mother always said that she, she wanted the cheapest funeral possible. And I went, I went to the co-op. You know, they'll do, the, they'll do the best deal on a funeral. No, they, they were too expensive. Anyway, a guy who was sort of looking after a business side of things for me on the boat and with Mother started to do all the arrangements down there. And Jill Sherwin, who I was living up with Birmingham, did all the things of writing to people and saying, you know, what Mother was going to, what was going to happen and how we're going to do it and writing to tell people that there was going to be a funeral, but there was... Nobody was to be there. It was just a private affair for me and no flowers and this, that and the other. So we did this and um, Mogridge, who was, the, who, who was the sort of business manager of the piece, we came down together from Birmingham and we did the, the funeral at the Downs Crematorium in Brighton. And then she, she went off and was cremated. And then next day... I got my boat, Seaway, at, at uh, Hale's Yard in Yarmouth on the Isle of Wight. And we set off back, and Mogridge, who was never one for expletives, and I won't use the expletives he word, but he said, we've forgotten Mother. And I said, what do you mean? And we hadn't got her ashes. So we had to turn around and go back to Brighton, and we picked them up. It, they weren't in a beautiful sort of cask or anything like that. They were just in a cardboard box, like a shoe box. And so we set off again for, to do the crossing uh, from Lymington to Yarmouth. And when we got off, Mogridge said to me, are you going to sling her off the ferry? <laughs> I said, how dare you say am I going to sling my mother off the Isle of Wight ferry? No way at all. I've got my own ideas. And when we got into Yarmouth, I got aboard the boat. We started the engines up. We put the flags up. I then lured the, the blue ensign. And we went out of the harbour and we went, started to head east. I put the boat on automatic pilot and I said to Mogridge, you go up forward and keep an eye for any traffic. It was fairly quiet, so we knew we'd be all right. But just in case something was around and I would have to go back and, and take her off pilot and, and manoeuvre the boat out of trouble. And anyway, I could hear my mother saying, whatever you do, when you come to put the ashes over the side, don't put them to windward whatever you do so anyway the first thing I did she had a photograph it was the only photograph she ever kept of a man called Eina Snerdrop who was the only love of her life and he lived in Spitsbergen mother couldn't have somebody 15 bus ride away he lived in Spitsbergen and in the summer mother used to get on her 45 foot boat and used to cross the North Sea and go into the Antarctic and go and see Eina for a month or so and then sail back again and she did that every summer for quite a while so I got this photograph of Eina in the silver frame and I threw that over the side and I watched it as it sort of cavated down and catching the sun and it was you could see it going down and then it came out of sight I then got a glass of my mother's favorite drink which happened to be a vodka martini and I made the vodka martini with a slice of lemon no ice because she wanted a full measure uh, just slice of, of lemon peel and with that I tossed that glass over the side to mother and then I came to the ashes, and I was surprised how heavy ashes were. And then I came, wet my finger to see which way the wind was blowing, looked at the flag and thought, right, I'll put them over this side. And I went, took them over, expecting, 
I think harp music and great sort of celestial choir singing. And it was just like cat litter. It just went <laughs> over the side, into the water. That was it. And I thought, well, anyway, I then went back, put the ensign up, took the boat back in and uh, spent the rest of the day doing various things in the yard and went and had dinner. And next morning, I thought to myself, I've lost the only person really in my life because I didn't know who my father was. I lost the only person in my life who I will never, ever see again. And I picked up my razor and I was in the bathroom on the boat and I picked up the razor and I looked in the mirror. I looked at myself and I thought, my God, it's my mother looking back at me. And I look just like my mother. Tony, that's a great story. You've told me that one before, but I love it. Yes, and, uh, yes. Remarkable lady your mother was, of course. Gosh, she was, yes. So you're... You're not ambitious. If work comes, you might take it then, yeah? Yes, I, I mean, I've, I've got in, in this, the position now where I'm just living on my pension, no sad violins in the background, because I'm, as I said earlier, I'm happier than I've ever been before. And I don't have enormous things. Um, you know, I don't have a private plane. I don't have anything that needs money. I'm quite frugal and enjoy what is around me. I live in a place called Saltine, just four and a half miles outside of Brighton. And the house is, has fortunately, because of work, been paid for. The mortgage is gone. And I'm very lucky, thank you very much indeed. But if something all of a sudden does come along and you think, oh, yes, I'd like to do that. I did the Rosamund Pilcher for German television two years ago, three years ago. And that was lovely. Gosh, the Germans treated you like you were a, a big star. They treated you so, so well. And that was fun. So I want to do things. I sometimes do after-dinner things, um, which are also fun, because you don't have to, to learn lines. I hate learning lines. Um, so, no, life is, is tickety-boo, John. Tickety-boo. And I know lots of fellow actors, uh, they all talk of you with such great regard because you're a friendly person and you've made so many mates over the years haven't you yes you do it, it's a funny business i mean you may not see anybody for four or five years and then all of a sudden bang you walk into them and you just pick up from where you left off it's no why haven't you phoned me i haven't seen you and none of that in our business i'll never forget the first time i met you it was on the river medina that's right on sylvia on sylvia yes and my late we wife... must say that sylvia was a boat <laughs> yes not a human being <laughs> hello sylvia what are you doing down there <laughs> and my, my late wife was uh, answered the phone one evening and it was you you'd phoned up yeah and you said can i speak to john and she said is on the phone oh. and i'll never forget you said to me i'd done a piece on you and you said to me congratulations you've got everything right yes i know but it was very early in my career and i never forgot that really yes. so i'm very grateful to you yes for that. No, it's true <laughs> oh i had somebody who wanted uh, funnily enough connected with this and uh, sussex life uh, this lady writes for Sussex Life, and she wanted to do a piece on me, which I would have, I really personally would have loved. But I remembered, uh, she said, I've done an interview with you before, about four years ago. And I said, oh, yes. And it was the most salacious, awful interview. I mean, she, she started off by saying, I pressed the doorbell and the crossroads theme reverberated all round the house. Well, it doesn't. I mean, I don't, wouldn't have anything like that. <laughs> then she said I was having six bathrooms put in this house. Well, that was next door. 
I've only got one bathroom and I've still only got one bathroom <laughs> and a cloakroom. So I've got two loos. That's my luxury, thank you very much. And, oh, she just went on about what I was wearing, about the furnishings in the house. It really was nasty and I thought, I, I'm not risking her doing this again. I don't want to do it, don't need to do it. I'm a retired man now yeah. who takes out gallbladders. <laughs> yes. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You've not been on the show for a while and it's just nice to have you back, today. Thank you, John. It's lovely to see you, as always. It's great. He's got a swell personality. He meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street. John Hanami. That's right. Thank you so much for listening to another John Hannameets Archive. Today we've been back to 2012 when I went to Worthing to interview Tony Adams. Incidentally, I phoned Tony just a week or two ago and all is well and he's very happy being retired and living in Sussex. Bye-bye for now. Sweet man. Who was he again, dear? John. John, yes. Yes, John. Just John. Hannam. Was it? Yes. 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 What does he do? He talks to people like you and me, dear. Oh, I see. <laughs>